as I just said, the upcoming week, let me make sure I'm on here. The upcoming week is the beginning of our church's week of prayer. So with that in mind, this morning is a standalone sermon leading into that week before we begin our sermon series this January through the New Testament book of James, which will start on the 15th. But we learned something about prayer by praying together, and we also learned something about prayer when we study what is in the biblical revelation about prayer. So this morning we're looking at an actual prayer of God's people in Psalm 90. <coughs> so at the top of the chapter, you might have seen, you can see this up here if you're looking at your Bible, you see a heading that says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And it's a little bit surprising for us to think of Moses as one of the authors of the Psalms. The major author of the Psalms is King David, who lived hundreds of years after Moses. But Psalm 90 is probably the oldest psalm in the Psalter. <coughs> and this psalm was written at the end of Moses' life. If you're going to understand the historical situation going on here of the psalm, you need to picture the people of Israel around the time of Deuteronomy as they were about to cross, into, cross the Jordan River and enter into the Promised Land. So let me refresh your memory as we just did with the kids. The Israelites had been delivered from Egyptian slavery and taken across the Red Sea by the mighty, miraculous power of God. And yet, despite this experience of seeing God's power, the Israelites were not willing to enter into the land that God prepared for them. They became terrified of the nations who lived on the other side of the Jordan River, and they refused to enter after getting a preview of what was in front of them. They refused to enter. And because of their unbelief, the Israelites experienced God's judgment. They experienced the consequences of their unbelief. And for the next 40 years, the people of God wander in the wilderness. And during that time, the scripture tells us an entire generation dies. An entire generation dies out there. So this psalm, Psalm 90, is written on the verge of great opportunity as a new generation has risen up. Moses himself is likely aware he is not going over with them. But the Israelites are now preparing <coughs> to do what the previous generation has failed to do and go in and inherit the land that's been promised. But you can see how that opportunity is also mixed with sorrow and regret in the background. So that's kind of our background for this psalm. Let's get into the text and we will see how it ought to shape our own prayers as we move into this year. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, we'll look at that in a moment. But the psalm begins by speaking about the character of God. If you, if you wanted to chunk this psalm up into three parts, we begin with hearing truth about God. Then secondly, we, we hear truth about ourselves. We transition to truth about ourselves. And then third and finally, we see how these two twin realities, who God is and who we are, lead God's people into prayer. So let's read verses 1, one through 2 and we'll hear truth about who God is. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
God is pre-existent. He is eternal. He's unchanging. He is the sovereign judge and also, amazingly, the refuge of man. That phrase, brought forth, refers to God's creative power as he speaks even the mountains into existence. I like the imagery of mountains here because for us, nothing, I don't think there's anything in the natural world that is more permanent seeming to us than a mountain. Often when we, when we contemplate the mountains, whether you go to the Adirondacks or you go somewhere higher than that, we are struck by our own comparative smallness. We see this overwhelmingly huge mass that has clearly been there long before we were, and yet, and it's been there so much longer than us, it's so much bigger than us, and yet the text tells us God was there before the mountains were brought, brought forth. Charles Spurgeon said that the snow-covered mountain is like a newborn baby to God. And this passage describes the immensity and the eternality of God, but we also see that this God is personal. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. The idea there is refuge. Refuge. In a physical sense, the Israelites who are singing this psalm together, they have not had a permanent home since they left Egypt. They are nomadic people at this point. They're wandering through the wilderness. They're living in tents. They do not have an address. They don't have a physical place to call home. And the dwelling place here is not a structure. It's God himself. It's his presence that's guided them. And that is still, I want to say this, that is still true for God's people. We may have apartments, houses, condos, places where we get our mail. God is our dwelling place. That is true for all the people of God. God is our refuge. And when the people say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, they are looking back and remembering the faithfulness of God, remembering his demonstrations of faithfulness. Then in Psalm, we see similar language in Psalm 46, which says, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. God's sovereignty, God's power, God's eternal nature, God's faithfulness. These truths are a comfort to the people of God. Martin Luther said this. He said, such a God have we, such a God do we worship, to such a God do we pray, at whose command all created things sprang into being. Why then should we fear if this God favors us? Why should we tremble at the anger of the whole world if he is our dwelling place? Shall we not be safe so the heavens should go to wreck? For we have a Lord greater than all the world. We have a Lord so mighty that at his word, all things sprang into being. This is our God. And having talked about God's character, now the psalm shifts and we see that the permanence of God is contrasted with the transience of man. Our days very much unlike God, are limited. Our days are fleeting. Our lives are fleeting. God is eternal, but verses 3 through 6 start to tell us truth about who we are, truth about our human condition. Verses 3 through 6. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight 
are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. What we see here is the weakness of our lives set in stark contrast with God's eternity. The oldest living person in the world right now is a woman named Lucille Randone. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She's living in France. She's 118 years old. I looked that up on Thursday. By now, by now she may have lost her title. I'm not sure. But even the longest human life, even the longest human life is just momentary when we compare our lives to the everlasting and eternal God. No one has ever lived to be a thousand years. That's like yesterday to God. It's like a passing moment. If I, if I misplace like a $20 bill, I will search everywhere for it. Did I put it in a drawer? Did I leave it in my pocket? Did it fall out of my wallet? But if, if Jeff Bezos loses like a few hundred million dollars, he can go out for dinner and, not, and then go to sleep like a baby. My $20 would be nothing to him. It's a penny. God is rich in time. The clock is running out on everyone except for him. And who can stand before this God? The imagery, you see this imagery of dust. And that passage comes from creation, where Genesis 2 tells us that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth. Then when sin enters the world, so does, sin, so does toil, so does suffering, so does ultimately death. Death is not a natural part of the world. It's not part of God's design. It's part of the curse of sin. And when Adam is cursed, this is what's pronounced on him after his rebellion. God says to him in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The Genesis imagery tells us that the shortness of life is part of the curse. And you'll notice as you read through the psalm, there are repeated references to the passing of time. (coughs) Words like yesterday, days, number our days, make us glad all our days, for as many days as you have afflicted us. There's There's a theme here of the passing of time. There were some years ago, maybe 25 at this point, maybe 30, that the great preacher Billy Graham was giving an address to college students. And at that time, Billy Graham was asked, he was about 70 years old, and he, he was asked, or, or he said, a student asked me some time ago, what's the greatest surprise of your life? This is someone who's met world leaders, spoken to millions. And Billy Graham said, I said the greatest surprise in my life is the brevity of life. I never dreamed it would be so short. It seemed like yesterday I was in school. Our lives are short. They're fleeting. But the problem is not simply that our lives are short. Our lives are also devastated by sin. The psalm now considers human frailty. And then it considers the reality of our sin and God's holy judgment towards sin. Look at verses 7 through 11. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. 
You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This is where the historical situation of the psalm starts to be very helpful to us. As the Israelites stand in front of the Jordan, the wilderness is behind them. And the promised land is before them. They're reminded of the sins of the wilderness. Their parents worshipped the golden calf. They complained against God. They rebelled against Moses. They harbored jealousy towards their leaders. And all of those sins were exposed. And all of those sins had consequences that affected the whole nation. Everyone standing in front of the Jordan has very vivid, firsthand experience of the devastation that was wrought by those sins. There's an entire generation that perished in the wilderness. God's led them from Egypt. He showed them his generous power. But think about this. How much more is this true of God's people today who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and have experienced the grace of God? How much more should we say, oh God, cleanse us from all secret sin? And this psalm, as, people, as the people of God look back, it is in some ways a lament. It would fall under that category. It's a communal expression of regret. But let's also notice these people are seeing clearly, maybe for the first time, they are seeing clearly the enormity of what lies in front of them. Imagine observing the failure of an entire generation and then thinking, well, we've got it, though. Imagine observing the, the failure of this entire generation that went before them and then having the presumption to go into the promised land without prayer, without consecration, without total dependence on God. The first time they had approached the promised land, 10 of the 12 spies who were sent returned with a bad report. They were overwhelmed by the obstacles. And God pronounces judgment on them for their unbelief. God says this to them in Numbers 14. God says to them, Truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see this land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. What's interesting is in the aftermath of that judgment in Numbers 14, after this heavy proclamation of judgment was pronounced, the people get together and they say to Moses, you're right, we've said it. It kind of registers with them that they have messed up. And, but they have a quick fix. They want to brush over it. They want to go fix it for themselves. So they decide, well, we'll go fight after all. We'll go fight after all and make everything better. And Moses warns them, the presence of God is not with you. Numbers 14.44 says, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant nor Moses departed out of the camp. And without the presence of God with them, they were quickly overwhelmed and destroyed. They presumed. To presume is to assume something is true. Like I could say, I presume that tomorrow will be cold. 
I have not looked at a weather app. But I have years of history of living in Buffalo in January. And that is the ground of my assumption. But sometimes we presume something, not because we have any facts to back it up, but just because that's what we want to believe will be true. That's what the Israelites did. We, we did sin, you're right. I guess, Moses, you are right. But we presume that it will not be that big a deal to God. Going back to Psalm 90, do you hear where it says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We presume incorrectly, without any grounding, that God will be lighthearted about our sin and will easily look past it. So verses 1 through 11 tell us truth about God. He's eternal, sovereign, everlasting, creator, judge, holy, to be feared, and he is our refuge. And these verses tell us truth about ourselves. We are weak, frail, insignificant, sinful. Our lives are fleeting. The psalm says that the length of our lives, there's 70 or 80 years. Many people live shorter lives than that, some a little bit longer. Either way, it's a vapor. It's momentary. It's nothing compared to God. The Bible's very clear-eyed about our condition. You could say it like this. We don't live very long, and we don't live the way we should. And these are realities that most people try to avoid thinking about. Let's think for a second about where these truths lead most people. For the most part, we do our best in American culture to avoid thinking about the shortness of life. We do this in so many ways, whether it's euphemisms like talking about death like she passed away, or whether it's the unbelievable dollars spent on anti-aging products, or whether it's our cultural obsession with youth and our tendency to despise seniors and aging. I'll give you, I'll give you an example, personal example. So I'm 42 years old. The average life expectancy right now for an American man is 74.5 years old, right in the middle of what Moses said thousands of years ago. And yet people don't call me middle-aged. That would be rude. (laughs) Middle-aged in the United States is 50s and 60s, even though that is not in any sense the middle. We try our best not to think about death and eternity. And we do different things in our attempting not to think about it. Some people focus on pleasure and just wringing the most of life that they can. Other people have different distractions. Or they presume nothing will happen after the grave, or at least not anything bad. Verse 11, again, says, Who considers the power of your anger? We actively try not to consider that. And that is true not only of the broader culture, but theologically as well. We have churches, denominations, theological movements dedicated to wiping away any reference to God's holy anger. But here's the conclusion that Moses and the people of God come to as they stand at the crossroads with the Jordan River on one side and the wilderness on the other. The greatness of God and our frailty and sinfulness should lead us to earnest prayer. Yes, there is a chasm between who God is and who we are. And yes, 
We have sinned and sin incurs judgment. And yes, life is short and death is certain. And yet, all those things being true, that does not lead the people of God to despair or hopelessness, nor does it lead them to this pointless pursuit of pleasure and hedonism. It actually leads them to prayer. Let's look at this prayer. The people of God say together in Psalm 90, starting in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We don't live very long and we don't live the way that we should. That is true. There's an, old joke where two, there's an old joke where two women are eating together at a restaurant. And one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. And the other woman says, I know. And the portions are so small. Well, that's how some people think about life. But that is not where this psalm takes us. Rather, the people cry out in true recognition Help us make the most of the short life that we've been given. Give us wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to live skillfully in light of the truth that God has revealed. It's more than just being good at life. It's living skillfully in light of revealed truth. The pillars of wisdom are the biblical revelation of God and proper humility that comes from that about who we are. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is everlasting. We are fleeting. We're sinful. Our lives are a vapor. If we fall in the normal framework, we live about 4,000 weeks or so. And we are not born with wisdom. That should humble us. It should lead us to prayer. Notice that the people say, teach us. Wisdom's not natural. But the reality of our condition isn't meant to lead us to despair although it is meant to make us despair of our own ingenuity and our own self-sufficiency. When, God, when Moses saw God's anger, when Moses saw God's anger, when the people worshiped the golden calf, it made him realize he had no desire to go forward without God's presence. He had a recognition of his absolute dependence on God. Exodus 33, right after the incident with the golden calf, Moses prays to the Lord and says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. If we look at the conclusion of this prayer, it helps us see that the shortness of our days doesn't just lead us to grimness and despair. In this passage, we do see realism, but we see joy too. Our lives don't need to just be dour and grim and joyless. The psalm prays, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. 
The people of God find their deepest joy in the steadfast love of God. We need it each day, in the morning, when the day begins as a fresh reminder and anchor for the soul. And on this side of the cross, we have a powerful reminder of the steadfast love of God. The Christian can say, yes, my life may be short. My earthly life may be short. But because of the cross of Christ, I will live forever with the eternal God. What a reason for joy and gladness. Because our days are short, but our union with Christ is unbreakable. So in our time on earth, we ought to pray earnestly for God's help. The Israelites prayed that they might accomplish their mission, which was to be a blessing to the nations and to show the earth what life under God's rule and reign looked like, and that he might reveal his power to both themselves and their children. They're, they're praying, and they're very aware of past failures, very aware of their need for faith and divine empowerment. And the singers of this psalm, they are heirs of the promises of God. And what I want to say in conclusion is, so are we. This is not a history lesson. We need the blessing and power of God, each one of us, so that we can be faithful and fruitful in everything that God calls us to. I mean that as a church in our mission of making disciples, and I mean that as individuals in the places that God has called us to. So this psalm teaches us to pray, Lord, we need you. Teach us wisdom. Let us find our true joy in you. Let your favor rest upon us and establish the work of our hands. We're going to, as a response to this, we're going to sing together in a moment. And the song, that we're, or the song that we're going to sing is by Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's a, this is a, we're going to sing, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. And it's an old so- song. I don't know that we've sung it here for quite a long time. But we're doing that because it's coming right out of Psalm 90. So we're going to do that as a corporate expression of response to God's word. But let me pray for us, as we, and then we'll move into song. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've revealed in Scripture. Truth about who you are and who we are. And I pray that those realities would penetrate our hearts so that we may, and that you would teach us a heart of wisdom. Lord, we pray that we would depend completely on you, that we would repent of our self-sufficiency or our sense that we know everything that's right, but that you would teach us true humility and wisdom. And that, Lord, as your people, you would establish the work of our hands. We pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and we will sing together.